Hello, I'm Todd Unger, and this is AMA Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association. More than 2.4 million seniors in the United States identify as LGBTQ. And as the baby boomer generation ages, that number will only increase. Today, Dr. Magda Holberg, Chief Clinical Officer at Howard Brown Health in Chicago, and Jill Dispenza, Director of the HIV and STD Hub and Hotline Resources at the Center on Halstead in Chicago, discuss the healthcare needs of LGBTQ patients ages 65 and older, as well as how physicians can work better with this population. Let's join their conversation. There are concerns about aging that affect the entire LGBTQ community, but I'd like to address some of the issues that trans elders specifically face as they age. You did touch on some of this. Can you discuss some of the barriers to health care inequalities that trans elders face? Certainly. Um, so what within what we know in terms of... Uh, these are usually community surveys um, and community sample data from older adults that are gender nonconforming or transgender identified. Um, I would say that it's, it, it's, it's accentuated some of the uh, health disparities that we see in LGBTQ older adults as a whole. So um, for older adults that are transgender, identified um, there's in terms of the data one out of five have been refused medical treatment altogether so not even just refusal of gender affirming or hormone treatment but just medical care period um, and so care refusal is definitely a uh, an issue so there's an issue with uh, that I think is particularly pronounced um, and then we do see the data is what the data is pointing to is that um, people are really almost twice or three times as likely to experience, you know, physical or verbal violence. So, um, so that is a theme that we see with older adults that um, within the transgender community is that they're experiencing uh, violence. And so that could be elder abuse that could be, uh, intimate partner violence, uh, and then that could be um, just in general in the community. So um, having something happen when you're um, just going about your business, so to speak. So that is a common experience that certainly is, um, we think, experienced much more frequently in this population. My experience in other kind of work is that if you help assist address the barriers to folks who are most impacted um, by issues that the others who are a little less impacted benefit. And sometimes um, lumping LGBTQ folks together doesn't necessarily address trans folks' needs. Um, are, have you thought about what kind of experience have you had of specifically targeting or serving trans folks, um, and then being able to generalize that into a LGBTQ assistance? I think I know where you're going with this, but but I'll, I'll give it a try. Um, it's, 
and we do see this in geriatrics quite a quite a lot, which is that the lower barrier care, so uh, care that's easy to access or affirming to access, and that means both physically, you know, physical spaces that are affirming or have less barriers for many people really benefits everyone. So while people think about it as, um, you know, when you're designing a space or designing um, a medical center or making decisions, um, if you do keep a really broad patient base in mind, you're actually going to make better decisions. So, um, and that certainly we've seen this in geriatric uh, care because when people ask us, like, who are you designing these things for? Who are you serving? You know, you're really, you're serving your future self, for one, meaning that we all are probably going to experience in our lifetime uh, some degree of health issues or chronic issues or mobility issues. Um, so designing for that in mind as the center of your concept of design for healthcare definitely, I think, benefits everyone uh, and there's there's unanticipated benefits. I think with uh, older adult, there are programs. I think where um, it's serving the program serving LGBTQ adults, but not so much the T. So um, I think that I think that there's definitely I think there's definitely a space and a place for um, for transgender aging work that's specific to uh, gender non-conforming and uh, trans-identified older adults that is of benefit because it is a very, the whole population, so LGBTQ community in general has very different health needs for all of those uh, different categories and many of them intersect. But but yeah, I would say that the, these, most of our LGBTQ spaces and services are not necessarily designed around um, around the transgender community, but they might, but it might benef be beneficial if, if it was. <laughs> right, right. Um, you brought up a really interesting point that um, seniors often, because the conversations weren't able to be had openly about who they were, who they loved, that they looked for cues. Um, there's Lots of folks I talk to, um, seniors, who are looking for that rainbow, even if it's a pin on somebody's shirt, um, a brochure in a doctor's office, um, where they're seeing that tiny little rainbow tells that senior something really important without them having to ask. And if they don't see it, they sometimes make the assumption this is not affirming uh, place. So... Um, those kind of messages, they can be subtle, but sometimes being really blatant can be helpful. And then the cis folks, the non-LGBT folks, they may think, oh, that person just like rainbows. They don't know what it means, especially that the gay people definitely know what it means. Yeah, I think that that makes, that is a really good point. Um, so what we've heard from LGBTQ older adults is that, um, you know, many of the LGBTQ spaces are not necessarily affirming for older adults. So you don't see images of yourself. You don't see portrayal of uh, older adults um, as being kind of sexual beings. Um, so a lot of the imagery that we see in LGBTQ communities and, and um, 
literature that we're going to, we're going to, when you walk into a space or a community area is uh, generally geared towards younger people. Um, and that can be alienating. And then really uh, the older adult spaces or aging services can kind of vary from being uh, passively unsafe for LGBTQ older, older adults to really being actively unsafe. Uh, so there's a, a whole spectrum there. But yeah, definitely people have have shared that, which is uh, feeling out of place in both of those areas um, at the intersection. Yeah, even a doctor's office having condoms um, in, in a space where people can take them so that seniors are seen as sexual human beings um, can make a profound difference. Dr. Holbert, how do you think discrimination affects LGBTQ seniors in housing, uh, for example? Certainly. Um, so housing is one of the primary concerns of LGBTQ older adults. So it's really one of the resources that are is most requested, uh, particularly kind of affirming housing, if possible, or affirming caregiving you know, um, locations. So for example, as in senior housing, that's affirming. So what we, uh, what people experience is, is actual true bias. So for example, if you are going to try to access or get a spot in a, in an older adult housing, uh, for LGBTQ, uh, seniors, they're, um, they're, they actually receive differential treatment. So there's been some studies where they've compared kind of what the, what the housing availability is for someone who is non-LGBTQ and what is presented to someone who is LGBTQ. So there clearly is kind of unconscious bias in how housing is distributed or how landlords or how individuals kind of interact in a way that would, um, that limits people's housing options. So um, that's one way where we see kind of a direct uh, direct bias. I think for caregiving, um, in, in, in caregiving, we see uh, for skilled nursing facilities, for example, or other um, assisted living uh, set spaces is really either active or passive and unsafe conditions. So, um, so people can experience um, active hostility in those spaces, you know, and particularly it's difficult because it's, um, it's, it's staff and it's potentially other individuals living there that are your, you know, one of your peers, for example, that can be very difficult to manage. So um, as much as people talk about like bullying as being, you know, a a school age issue. It's actually a huge issue, I think, for older adults. Um, it can be, you know, so there is actually no limit on age and that type of, you know, and having those types of dynamics. So that that's some of the ways that we see bias, um, you know, even today. So And housing equals health, right? Absolutely. Um, it, with aging work, it's in some sense, it's, it's about a lifetime of resources. So um, if you are not getting access to, to great employment options, you know, you're very 
unlikely then to have a really nice 401k that you're going to be putting money into. And when you go into your older adults, when you are decide to not work anymore or want to retire, it's a very different proposition. So resources are huge. Housing is a huge part of that. Um, since if, particularly for an older adult, if you are not housed, your health outcomes are really, um, really, really bad because you, you don't really have even the physical, in some cases, the physical resilience to handle being unhoused or unstably housed. So, so that is one of the most critical unmet needs that we, that we see. And also um, ageism happens in our society as a whole. And then in the LGBTQ community, often, not always, but often, um, you know, it's about young bodies and muscles and being able to go out and drink. Um, and some of that's true and some of that's a stereotype, but it can sometimes lead to older LGBTQ folks almost losing their community and their identities as they age because they they feel like they're not necessarily part of that community anymore. Um, so it can be happening to them, but it can be also internalized um, stigma also. Um, what do you think about mental health uh, issues with um, LGBTQ folks and the services that exist? Are there good services? Are there um, pitfalls that LGBTQ folks can fall into when it comes to those kind of um, services? I think with, uh, so mental health concerns and behavioral health is, is one of the areas of disparity that we see in LGBTQ populations of all ages. Uh, so increased rates of depression and anxiety, um, particularly in uh, gender nonconforming and uh, transgender populations. It correlates a lot with stress, meaning the stress of kind of going through bias and discrimination that's uh, over a lifetime can, can definitely, you know, can contribute to mental health concerns. Um, there are not a lot of mental health services available. So um, it's one of the areas that I think, you know, across our city or really nationally, there are certainly not enough services uh, for anyone, <laughs> but particularly I think if one is looking for an LGBTQ for affirming mental health care support, uh, that can be particularly difficult, you know, for an older adult to, uh, to access. The other thing is that, you know, depression and anxiety looks different in older adults than it does in young people. So often, you know, while we are very concerned about suicide in young LGBTQ populations, uh, many times the people who complete suicides are uh, older adults. So older adults in general kind of have a higher completion rate. I think it is challenging because not all behavioral health services are going to be a appropriate for or affirming for LGBTQ or older, older adults. And it does look different. So in some cases, depression and anxiety can be masked in a very different way that makes it not apparent to a clinical provider um, because it doesn't, it may not involve the same types of 
ways that younger people might express themselves during depression and anxiety. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. And especially in our neighborhood, um, in Boys Town in Chicago, it, um, you know, so folks can look different too as they age with HIV just because they, they took medicines in the early days that had toxicities and changed body fat and other things. Um, but there's a strength, um, but there's a profound loss in so many of the you know, older uh, folks living with HIV that I talked to um, of their cohort. They miss them terribly and they're haunted by them still. I think it's a, a, a profound mental health need that, um, and just the support to offer the folks because so many people died in the 80s and 90s that people didn't have time to think about those losses and they're starting to, it's almost, it's PTSD, it's starting to come back um, those faces and those friendships and that song that somebody used to sing and the dog that I helped feed because my friend was dying, you know, it's coming back to folks as they're getting in their 60s, 70s, 80s. And I guess another question we touched on it is isolation and the profound medical impact that has on people, even people with support. Um, the isolation leads to addiction issues, mental health issues, um, not taking care of medical issues. Yeah, absolutely. I think so, you know, isolation and loneliness is, is kind of a silent epidemic in, in all ages, you know, I, I would say, but it is particularly profound for older adults and people think of they don't correlate necessarily loneliness with health outcomes, but it does correlate. So there's higher risk of mental health issues, conditions like blood pressure, heart disease, um, cognitive decline, and Alzheimer's. These are all risk factors that probably are enhanced by loneliness. And uh, yet we don't, like as a society, address it, address loneliness as a serious concern you think of it as more an individual problem. So the individual needs to solve this loneliness issue that they're experiencing. But the reality is that people are set up to be lonely. Um, and unless you, you know, creating, it's very difficult for people, you know, past, very, it, it's, it takes some, you have to make some risks to make friends and to connect when you might be rejected. Uh, really at any age. And so I think people do find as they grow older that they might have difficulty making new friends. So they have a set of friends from their youth and um, that's who they've been relating to. And they're the same age. So they might age and you know not be available for them in the same way that they were. So 
I do think it needs to be, well, loneliness needs to be kind of like a national, it's a national health crisis. But I think because people see it as an individual experience, they don't see it as, as really a, a pattern, you know? Like Howard Brown here, they've done amazing things that we've heard about because they do medical provision, but also social services. So they assume that the isolation is part of their practice. And so they have groups and they have a social worker who helps with navigation and they do outings um, where, you know, people are so, the seniors enjoy it so much that, that we've heard clients who've said, oh, I'm 54. Next, next year, I'm going to be 55 and I can finally join this group. Um, so there's a lot of desire to do that. And the thing I really appreciate is that the physicians and the staff at Howard Brown and the Core Center didn't wait for somebody else to do it, to help this situation or, or the make the individual somehow help it. They said, we're going to help make this happen. And they did in a really effective way that created um, places for people to have friendships. And they also, one of the things I've seen, not just with seniors, but younger folks, is sometimes providers like to kind of, in quotes, blame the client for the patient for their coping mechanisms. Oh, that person doesn't show up to their medical um, appointments, so what's their problem? Um, and these kind of social service add-ons to um, the medical provision helps address that though, and not blame the client or the patient for not having the struggles that they're having and understanding that that's also part of their medical care. Um, I think it's a profound um, success when it's done and not waited for somebody else to do it, but making that kind of surround um, services for seniors makes a profound difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've kind of reflected on this because I, I do think that um, since you know, human connection is, is a real human need and is necessary, I think, for people to experience kind of health and wellness and, and have a good quality of life, that uh, some of the interventions that we look at for human connection can potentially have a better health, have more profound health benefits <laughs> than some of the medical care and prescriptions that somebody might get. Um, so, you know, I think for several reasons, one, it keeps you safer because more people are checking in with you or you have places to be and people will know if, you know, if you're not feeling well, they might call, but also just in general, you know, um, it, it can really help uh, people's physical wellness. So, you know, while we think of all this high tech, we want to do a lot of high tech me medicine. Um, some of these things are really very low tech, but they just require like the society to really prioritize um, those kinds of support. And especially when people are traumatized either because of COVID or because of a lifetime of discrimination, we run um, HIV resource hub here at the center on Halstead that um, connects folks during COVID to emergency financial assistance. And one of the biggest successes was we answer the phone <laughs> when people call. Um, and we get a lot of seniors, a lot of folks who are um, uh, monolingual, 
uh, Spanish speakers, but they don't have to hit 10 numbers to get to somebody. They don't have to guess which is the right number to hit. They don't have to click on some link where they have a flip phone and they can't see it. I think it's uh, literally what you said, having that kind of low tech, um, I'm here and I, I, we call folks back and let them know where we're at in the process, which they really appreciate so that they're not feeling forgotten. But when, especially now with all the high tech stuff, having somebody answer a phone uh, is, is uh, transformative sometimes. <laughs> um, oh, one of the final questions possibly that I'm really interested in is, um, as we know, there's intersectionality with people in our population, LGBTQ, um, race, ethnicity. Um, how do, do those intersecting um, identities affect LGBTQ seniors? So we've, uh, in terms of, in terms of data on um, LGBTQ older adults of color, um, we, what we've understood is really uh, economic insecurity is one of the highest risks. Uh, and that's usually through a lifetime of having um, bias introduced in the workplace and how, um, how you're paid and compensated. Um, and a lot of that can be magnified. So the intersections of this could make it much more likely that someone will have um, difficulty with uh, security, economic security as they grow older. So um, that's one of the, one of the pieces that has kind of come to light in terms of data and uh, intersectionality of LGBTQ older adults um, of color. So it's uh, a lifetime of income. So basically as you, as you go through all of these disparities get magnified with age because if you're starting at a lower pay rate and part of your future, you know, your future is going to be determined by your social security. I'm Todd Unger, and this is AMA Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association. You can also subscribe to other great AMA podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. For more American Medical Association events and other AMA member-only benefits, join the AMA at ama-assn.org slash join.